1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And the conversation I'm about to have, I've been looking forward to having for a very long time for two reasons. Raphael Baer is a brilliant writer. Many of you read his columns and it's sort of like, as with the book, it's not like reading music. It has a flair and quality to it. And uh, so that's one reason I'm looking forward to my conversation with Raphael Bear. The other is this that as those of you who listen regularly know, one of um, our themes in our time together is exploring terms. And one of the terms that recurs in RAF's book, which is Politics, a Survivor's Guide, How to Stay Engaged Without Getting Enraged, are two themes uh, we've explored a lot. One is anger and whether we should be angry. And some of you write to me all the time and say, you're so calm. And I say to all of you, it's an act. I'm not. I'm furious and angry about lots of things. It is a total act. And the other is Raph explores the centre ground versus populism. And one of our themes in our times together on this podcast is what does that mean, the centre ground? What is centrism? So for all these reasons, I'm thrilled that Raphael Bear has given up the time to join us. Thank you, Raf. Could I begin on the theme of anger? Because, I mean, you must be fed up talking about this. But uh, on one level, I think you got into such a state that you went running and had a heart attack. And and I remember reading about this when you first wrote about the Guardian. I couldn't believe it because you're slim and fit and active. And, and was it partly, uh, it's still not entirely clear to me because you said you were a big smoker and, you know, it's in the family history, heart problems. But do you attribute part of the heart attack to the anger you were feeling about politics and Brexit at the time?
0: Uh, the short answer, I think, is is a bit yes because obviously as you say you know, an underlying genetic predisposition to cardiovascular disease uh having spent most of my 20s with a cigarette in my mouth and a predilection for pastries are going to give you cardiovascular disease at some point almost certainly but the the trigger the, the thing that can tip you over the edge, and in my case, you know, cause an unusually massive heart attack, given how young I was, I was in my late 40s, mid to late 40s, um, it is stress and high blood pressure. And I was incredibly stressed. Um, so it would be facile to say that the state of British politics in 2019 somehow Caused a uh, sort of a rupture in an artery in my heart, and yeah, that, that, that's not how it works. But when I look back on the emotional and physical state I was in, and how sort of disordered my thoughts were, and how essentially incredibly wound up I was um, at that time, that was an expression of my relationship with politics entirely. And More crucially, the reason I wrote the book or the sort of the genesis of the book wasn't so much blaming politics for my heart attack, it was the enforced convalescence after the heart attack that gave me the opportunity to think, how did I get myself so wound up by politics and what would be a healthier way to actually look at some of these underlying problems, the causes of the the rage and the anger that that you've talked about. And that, so that is, in a sense, it's more a question of what did convalescence teach me about politics rather than what did politics do to the state of my arteries?
1: Yeah, you see, it's interesting because it raises a fascinating question about whether anger is unhealthy. Now obviously if it gives you a heart attack, that's a clear answer, it is dangerously unhealthy. But you know, I kind of I interviewed Anthony Seldon for this podcast uh, a week ago, and he's a mild mannered figure in demeanour. He is so angry about that Johnson premiership, and it's healthy. In a way. I, I when I did the interview, I thought God, I wasn't angry enough at the fact that a figure so wholly unsuitable for power at any level commanded virtually total power at historic junctions of brexit and covid and and i kind of think anger can be an important dimension to politics as long as it doesn't kill
0: us i'd go i'd go further i think it's absolutely essential and this is why i try quite hard to distinguish between the kind of anger that you feel as a spur to action in a response to injustice, or in the case you just described, which we all, I think, lots of rational, reasonable people felt about Boris Johnson, you know, just something of you know, a, a terrible violence that was being perpetrated against the sort of constitutional order of British politics and, and the decency of, of democracy. Obviously, that stimulates anger. Uh, and there's a, I think, towards the end of the book, I quote Philip Roth, where he's from, it's actually a character in a novel, but it's a great line where he says, you know, anger is to make you effective. That's why it's given to you and if it doesn't make you effective anymore that's when you drop it it's kind of it has an evolutionary function um to to as you say to sort of spur uh that sense of justice and to want to do things and a a distinction i try to draw is between i think a sort of a sincere uh, and you know emotional but also rational Response to bad politics and a kind of incapacitating rage that makes people want to just completely switch off from politics or despair of it, or uh, even worse, I think, engage in a kind of hyper cynical contempt for all of politics, which itself is actually slightly corrosive of democracy. And the other crucial distinction I think is worth drawing is between, you know, and this is something that I really had to work at in myself, is distinguishing between the anger that. I think is a, a sort of a legitimate and authentic response to bad things being done in politics and a more synthetic kind of fury that you can whip yourself up into if you spend too much time on social media or you get caught up in kind of very hyper-partisan culture war arguments where the thing that you are actually angry about or the grievance that's really animating you uh, might be actually peripheral to what the real problem is and it might not be an aid to a, a judicious... Analytical view of what the actual problems in politics are. So that's that's why I sort of I think fury and rage are slightly different from anger in that respect.
1: Just while we're on this theme, um, I think you resolved after having this terrible phase of your life uh, to do less social media and yet you've gradually come back but i think you still it at weekends and holidays as a way of containing the sort of uh, synthetic rage of twitter uh, because twitter unquestionably is not good for the blood pressure i think it has many good things actually but god can you get worked up can't you and weirdly worked up because it's an artificial forum in some respects
0: yeah, there are two two elements to that. And, and I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of organized hypocrisy at the moment because I'm on Twitter more than I ordinarily would be because I'm trying to promote the book. But that, do you know, you're know you right. One thing that actually a, a friend of mine who worked in the lobby and journalism you know, made this observation to me, and he's absolutely right, which is if there is a device, which is my mobile phone, uh, and an application on that device, which is Twitter, which you can say with absolute confidence is going to upset you or make you angry, why would you make it the first thing you look at in the morning before you've even turned and sort of looked at your wife and greeted your children? And why would you make it the last thing you look at at night? And so that's quite basic kind of hygiene. Uh, And and then the second point, which is more about the systems themselves of social media, which is that there is an illusion that – or there's a sort of common myth, which is that in social media we're all – Uh, We've got into information silos and we've surrounded ourselves entirely with people who agree with us and we're not seeing rival or contradictory opinions to our own. And that's not actually true, but because, you know, actually there's a a tremendous diversity of opinion on on the Internet, far more than we would have done if we were just taking one newspaper and when there are only three channels on television. But... We are seeing those rival views presented to us by people who agree with us as examples of the wrong thing to think and the most appalling thing ever. So what you end up getting is, you know, your own views reflected back to you through a prism of the most caricatured, appalling iteration of the opposite view. Do you see what I mean? That sense that so I don't. it's, It's not that I'm I'm exposed to people who might have voted for brexit it's that the only people who i encounter who vote for brexit are the people the ones who are expressing it in the maddest most sort of cartoonishly extreme way that gratifies my view that they might be mad racist and nationalist and therefore excuse me from an obligation to try and understand why they voted for brexit and that's really dangerous i think
1: yeah uh now what i'd like to move on to now is an area so i could obviously agree with you about brexit your columns on it have been a joy what I am less sure about and genuinely inquire is whether the juxtaposition between centrism and populism and moderation and populism are precise enough so let me give you an example with Brexit now I desperately wanted a second referendum like quite a few Labour MPs who were described as moderates in wanting that I think you wanted it uh, but you express some unease in the book Uh, I wanted it, but I'm wholly clear that was not a moderate position. Um, It was an extreme position. I wanted a referendum that everyone pledged to enact to be disowned by a second referendum. That's not moderate. That's not centre. I think it was right. It's about means and ends because the end of Brexit was so dangerous. But when we use terms of moderate and centre to describe something like that, I think is inaccurate and imprecise and... Anyway, what do you think?
0: I, I, no, I completely agree. And and there's one passage in the book that I think is a, a paragraph I probably had to think harder about than almost anything else in it, where I try to disentangle exactly this problem. Because by the time you'd reached 2016, there was a, a set of quite lazy assumptions about what defined set the centre in politics that had conflated two very different things one was a sort of a tactical campaigning proposition which is was more accurately described as sort of triangulation where you say well yeah if you're if you're a bit too far on the right you sort of co-opt some stuff on the left and you make your way to the middle which is how sort of new Labour had crudely speaking, uh, accommodated to the Thatcherite consensus on economics to to win power. And then David Cameron had done the sort of symmetrical thing, uh, accommodating to a a sort of liberal left social consensus that had accumulated over the 90s to bring the Conservative Party back into the centre. But that's not a sort of an ethical... You know, proposition about what democracy and what politics should do. It's not a sort of. It's also you know, on the spectrum between whether you're more social democrat or more liberal or conservative in your economics. Uh, it's it's not it's not a middle way necessarily. It's just saying, well, where are most people probably on issues, and let me just say what they want to hear. And the, the, there are two problems with that. One is you know, it feels to a lot of people who care passionately about their politics kind of meretricious and without any kind of ethical anchor. And the other one is when it stops working electorally, it's completely hollow. There's nothing there. And what you found in the Remain campaign is that all the, it brought together, uh, you know, Blairites, Cameroons, Lib Dems, you know Nick Clegg, Tony Blair. I mean, there's this, this there's one of the most famous photographs from the referendum is one that has Paddy Ashdown and David Cameron and Neil Kinnock all at the same phone bank, uh, sort of uh, joking together. And if that was the centre, then that, that you know, it doesn't mean anything other than as a, a sort of a, a hollow campaign proposition. And then as soon as it lost, which it did... Um, there's nothing left. You've just got this sort of smouldering crater where where the centre ground used to be. Because I think the, the whole point of it is, is something that wins elections and it loses, um, and loses to a proposition which can, I think, quite reasonably claim to have mobilised a lot of people who felt excluded from politics, and many of them have never voted in their lives before. Then, you know, as you say, then then what is the centre? And it's very interesting. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm talking a lot here, but I think what you said is at, at the start of that question is really important. You know, that you know, recognizing that the demand or the, the the hope of a second referendum was an outlying position in that sense, because it was asking for something very drastic, which was the you know overturning of a referendum result, and that's exactly why I felt very queasy about it. Uh, and although I went on demonstrations and I waved my blue and gold star flag, all that time I was I was feeling especially towards the end when the Brexit Party so brilliantly. Uh, Sort of reconfigured the argument. So while Romain was still arguing, all those people's vote people were still arguing about the wisdom of leaving the European Union, the practicality of it, Farage and friends had moved on to a question of whether Britain was a democracy or not because people had asked for something and it wasn't happening. And that's why they won. And I think that's why they might well have won a second referendum.
1: To move on from Brexit to economic policy, and I've had this discussion on this podcast with Danny Finkelstein. Now, there was a Radio 4 programme out long before your book about three years ago. Where has the centre ground gone? And its two star interviewees were George Osborne and Tony Blair. There was no questioning about their claim to be on the centre ground. They were just allowed to explore about where it has gone. But George Osborne, economically, and David Cameron, you mentioned social liberalism, but is that enough to put them on the centre ground? Their economic policies were real-term spending cuts, austerity, sort of what uh, Oliver Letwin described to me as turbocharged Thatcherism. Now, they have every right to put their case and say that was the right thing to do. But doesn't centrism... Provide them with a protective shield that distorts everything. If you think that's the center ground, Kier Starmer's a Marxist, you know, in, in terms of the gap.
0: Absolutely, I think, and the center obviously moves. I mean, when you know, when the Gang of Four formed the SDP, I um, mean, yeah, the, the, that that their manifesto in the early nineteen eighties. Was closer to the manifesto that, in many ways, is more complicated. It was, was probably closer in terms of the economics to the manifesto that Jeremy Corbyn put forward in 2017 than anything else that you know was was at least effective in British politics in the last few years. And so, the, the fact that you know trying to plot it somewhere on a spectrum of of left and right or liberal and authoritarian, I think, is very difficult. And yet, if you discard the concept altogether. Uh, you know, it, you, you you have a problem because it, intuitively, I think people do understand that there is, as it were, a middle ground between rigid ideological propositions, and that's why I, I think, in a sense, the real problem with George Osborne and David Cameron is in their economic policy. It was very right-wing, but you know, by, certainly by European standards, but also it was sort of dogmatically rigid and didn't really look at the evidence actually of what austerity was going to do. Relative to you know, a, a, un, you know how pro cyclical it was and what the 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 cost would be for for most people, and in a way that's the bit of it that makes me think that's not centrist at all, is it? Because a more useful or interesting way of thinking about centrism is as an ethos of allowing the evidence to challenge some of your prior beliefs that underpin your got ideology, as it were. So it was as, a, as a contrast to dogma uh, and a, a willingness to take on board things that contradict your sacred views, uh, that uh, that to me feels more a more useful sort of avenue of analysis than thinking, well, there's, a, there's Bolshevism and there's sort of libertarianism, and then somewhere in the middle there's the centre. I don't think that's how it works.
1: Yeah, and it was, I found it very interesting when Nigel Lawson died, the degree to which, in a way his assumptions and orthodoxies are still in place uh, in, in many respects. And I don't think he would have said he was on the centre ground. He was on the the right of the Tory party. And ended up
0: very, you know, in all sorts of weird places towards the end of his life. But no, And, and, and the interesting thing there is how solid some of those Lawsonian assumptions have been, not just in spite of, I think, evidence suggesting that perhaps it's about time uh, there was a sort of a... a, a correction towards more interventionist and social democratic uh, political economy but in spite of quite a lot of politicians even in the conservative party believing that correction is necessary so i mean for all his flaws you know boris johnson understood that the people who'd voted for him in 2019 the red wall labor voters what part of what they wanted in exchange was public investment and, and and a redistributive project. That's what leveling up was in his head. He just didn't have the the sort of the character or the will or the imagination or the moral fibre to actually do anything about it.
1: So given that, where, I, I mean, your book sort of is timeless, and I, I can see why you didn't want to reflect much on Keir Starmer, because the book might date quite quickly if you, if you did, but we're talking now. He is another one who says, I'm on the centre ground, and uh, that's where Labour will make its pitch. But what do you sense that means in terms of his thinking? And do you detect Vulnerability in the evasiveness, not just of the term, but the uh, agenda he seems to be pursuing? It's a really interesting question because, I mean, taking the second bit first, the
0: vulnerability, I think, yes. What worries me is that, you know, he is leaning a little bit towards that, you know, what I think of as the sort of the obsolete the definition of centrism, which is the sort of tactical electoral one, which is the thing you you feel you ought to say to signal that you are not an extreme. And in this context, what he means is I have, uh, you know repudiated jeremy corbyn um uh, that that's it's sort of a code for that which i think is something electorally he, he necessarily has to do to win back a lot of voters but it doesn't signal to me a belief in very much and that is hazardous and it's hazardous i think also because if the conservatives go well i think the conservatives will go into opposition and then they will lose any remaining sense of obligation to to govern sensibly they won't be in government and they could get captured by Really wild right-wing fanaticism, um, but also have still a kind of cultural apparatus of support behind that in the Tory press and other things. Uh, and then, will Keir Starmer still be in the business of trying to accommodate and placate that? Will he be in the business of appeasing a sort of the the, the sort of pollulating, monstrous grievance mongering machine of right-wing culture war, or will he? Have a sufficiently clear set of his own beliefs that he will say, "Well, that's now marginal and mad, and I'm having no part in it." And I, I haven't yet seen him show that he he will do the right thing there, which makes me a bit bit worried. In terms of what he actually believes, though, I think yeah. You know, another, and I'm gonna, this is sounding very critical of Keir Starmer. Actually, I think he's done incredibly well in many respects. He's not. I don't think. An economist and he's outsourced a lot of the economic thinking and the argument to Rachel Reeves who again seems to me to be caught between actually pretty social democratic instincts we have known Rachel Reeves for, for a long time and a residual view going back to 2010 really and the Ed Miliband era that you still need to signal to the country that Labour isn't just going to waste all your money. So they've adopted the fiscal envelope that they're going to inherit from the Tories, which means you it's very hard to spend on stuff or very hard to talk about redistribution and tax and spend. So in that sense, yes, the answer to the second bit is I worry that the, there isn't going to be the clarity of it, it. In terms of where he actually is intuitively, the, the irony is, I you know, Keir is actually quite left-wing in many respects. You know, he doesn't, you wouldn't know it necessarily, I think, but certainly where he came from, the conversations I had with him before he became leader of the Labour Party led me to think he's kind of much more Kinnakite than Blairite, actually, in his view of the world. Um, I think he's also has quite a good and healthy intuition about the small C conservatism of the British electorate. uh, And that's probably quite sensible.
1: Going back to anger, (laughs) the other, we've talked about Brexit, in your book, the other phenomenon or theme that got you very angry was Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, I can understand why, although I'd have to say I I share your anger about many things, uh, even though I don't show it. I struggle to get angry about him. Uh, he was wholly unsuited for leadership; should never have been near it. Um, I met him a few times. I interviewed him several times. He seemed to be quite a mild mannered figure, whatever his views. Uh, you clearly do see him as someone who was dangerous, anti-Semitic, um, and 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 a threat who got you very angry. Uh, do 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 you still see him? in that light? I mean, obviously you did when he was leader and it was contributed to your sense of deep anger.
0: Yeah, I think I was, I was very upset at that time. You go, we're looking at sort of 2016 to 2019. And, you know, the, I say that the primary thing that I was against in that period was Brexit. Uh, and what I very much wanted was for the party that I'd always supported and voted for i've never been a member of a political party for, which is labor to represent my objection to that and stand against it uh, and so that i could feel if i you know if I, if I was in opposition if i wasn't going to belonging to what was the dominant political project of the time which is Brexit. i wanted labor sort of to feel to be on my side and the reality is you know jeremy corbyn you know, whether or not he's personally anti-Semitic or his actual views on Jews are, I could argue, you know, round and round. Yeah, you know, he. I, there's no doubt in my mind that the way that the company he kept and the way he behaved and the way he failed to respond to the problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party gave it a permission that turned something that had always been simmering away on the fringe of the radical left, uh, sort of a, gave it license to really infiltrate the mainstream and set up a kind of loyalty test for the left where you know if you ca- you know, called it out and if you said hang on there's some uh, you know appalling things being said here and appalling things being shared and anti-semitism is not getting sort of there's not it's not being shut down uh, you were accused of you know, basically, being a Tory, weaponizing anti-Semitism in ways to as, as part of some sort of plot or conspiracy of Blairites to undermine Jeremy Corbyn, and no longer sort of allowed, no longer authentically of the left, uh, and that you know when you combined it with what the Brexit right was saying about well, you know well if you don't support Brexit you're basically a traitor and a saboteur and you're not you're not a true patriot. Those two things sort of combine to give me the sense of well, yeah, you know, I've in the past I've maybe been annoyed and disappointed by British politics or felt that I don't like the government or I don't necessarily know who to vote for, but I've never had such a combined pincer attack on my sense of even belonging. To British politics, or belonging in the country as a sort of you know a, a, sort of a, a, an accepted member of this political community, when so many people seem to be sort of running their nails under the seam, where my, I'm, I'm feel joins to politics, and that was profoundly alienating and very distressing because I know a lot of people who, you know, you know, if from to my view, it looked like the proposition was well, Jeremy Corbyn's the leader of the Labour Party if you want a left government and you want Labour, yeah, there's a portion of anti-Semitism comes with that, but that's the price you've got to pay. And that is, or maybe it was rational choice that needed to be made, but it wasn't a price I could pay. And so I was thinking, I'm not paying it. And so I'm completely, I'm alienated from politics. Not once I'm going to vote Lib Dem, you know? (laughs)
1: I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. See, 2017, that election, um, which people really don't reflect on, what was, I think, worth reflecting on. Here was a choice between two parties uh, where, as you say, it was sort of SDP 1983, the Labour manifesto, and the Theresa May manifesto was more One Nation Conservative than we had had for some time. And both parties did get a huge proportion of the vote at that Election. And that's again where I wonder where the center ground fits in. I don't think either would claim they were on the center ground in that election, but you know, emphatically not. And yet there they were. I think it was the biggest vote for the two parties for decades. Um and, and there hasn't been much analysis of that. I absolutely take your point. If you were angry, you were angry. And of course, <laughs> a-
0: it's an incredibly hard election to to unpick that one. And and I think First of all, I think there was a, not a lot of analysis because a lot of people didn't really want to do the analysis because um, it, it, it would have meant to owning some quite hard truths about their own side. So the, the, the people who had opposed Jeremy Corbyn didn't really want to accept that the manifesto had been surprisingly popular. I think the people who supported Jeremy Corbyn didn't really want to accept an awful lot of those people who had voted Labour had voted Labour because they didn't think there was any chance of Corbyn actually winning, but they were Remainers and they wanted and they didn't like Theresa May. Uh, and so there was, yeah, how did you disaggregate voting Labour because of Jeremy Corbyn or in spite of Jeremy Corbyn? And crucially, the Tories ran one of the most self sabotaging campaigns ever and what to me was very revealing about that election was how much residual actually we hate the Tories feeling there still was in the country despite Cameron having won a majority uh, just two years earlier, uh, and how easy it was for Theresa May to just make a bit of a misstep. And, you know, she got on the social care thing, she got wrong, there were some other things, There there was some stuff about animal welfare in the manifesto that landed really badly, didn't get much coverage, but really cut through. And you didn't need much for people to think, oh, yeah, oh, the Tories, oh, no, we don't like them. And this is something I also understood much later, but a lot of Labour MPs said to me that, and this is very what was a difference between 2017 and 2019 is that quite a lot of those sort of red wall voters, for want of a better word, uh, who weren't keen on Jeremy Corbyn at all, uh, and this was still with very teetering on the brink of really not voting Labour. They they at that stage still thought Brexit had been done. This issue that it was in danger, that it might be taken away from you, that was so instrumental in the 2019 vote, actually wasn't all that salient in 2017. And that's, I think, that's under-recognised, I think.
1: Could we end where we began with, uh, you take us in the book into the operating theatre. And I think, doesn't the doctor say to you, I laughed out loud, there are moments where you laugh out loud in your book, uh, have you taken drugs? And you said, what, in the last few hours? And, uh, and, <laughs> and it was, it, you were in a really bad state at that point. But, you're now uh, uh, running in a way that, it's, it, long, long distances, aren't you? Uh, there's a sort of, there's an actual recovery as well as perhaps a metaphorical one in terms of dealing with the Intensity of politics. You're doing long runs, and
0: yeah, I mean, I the, the rehabilitation so far is is has gone very well. And I do I can run a half marathon. I ran eleven kilometres this morning, in
1: fact. Um, so you live in Brighton, do you run along the seafront? I've got an inspiring image of you running on the seafront in Brighton.
0: And- <laughs> so, well, the funny thing I do, but the funny thing is, I have a metaphor in my head for uh, a sort of which applies in many different political contexts, which is that sometimes you kind of go down from where I live in Brighton and hit the seafront and you just turn one way and you're running along thinking, oh, I feel terribly fit. This is great. I'm have you know, really, you know, really can go, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then I turn around and then realise actually I just had the wind at my back all that time. <laughs> I hit this barrage of air and think, okay, no, I wasn't actually fit and strong. I just I was just going with the wind and now it's really hard. And I think that that's that's true in a lot of things in politics. It's true of I think it's true of the sort of the, the privilege you have as a as a white man in politics. I think it was true of being a sort of liberal centrist in the, the you nineties. Know, you know, there were all sorts of things you can think we're winning. This is all great. This is because we're good, uh, and not just because it so happens that there's a prevailing wind pushing you along. And if you were to feel the wind the other way, you'd realize actually it's much harder. There's a great line that I can't remember. Uh, one of David Cameron's advisors. Uh, Gates said you know, during the referendum when he was getting absolutely hammered by the Tory press because he has a Remainer uh, and the Telegraph and the Mail and the Sun were all against him and he said oh so this is what it feels like to be Labour. It's like yeah actually guess what it's a bit harder when the wind's in your face isn't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I say uh, th- th- there's a metaphor and an actual narrative over your uh, recovery and running along uh, a windswept Brighton or what- whatever. So so, look, uh, Raph, thanks so much for giving up the time. Thank you for having me on. I know everyone who listens to this Rock and Roll Politics podcast will find your book incredibly stimulating because it addresses many of the themes that we reflect on in our time together. And for those of you listening, thank you for listening to this one. And I think we need to get together very soon to make sense of it all, and we will. Um, but in the meantime, uh, enjoy yourselves. See you all soon. Thank you for listening. Bye.